We'll turn to Matthew chapter 12 and look again at verses 20 and 21. A quotation from Isaiah. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Particularly the first phrase of uh, that lovely verse. Every loving parent will know how important it is to warn and to encourage their children. We all do, in a sense. We all need to be warned and we all need to be encouraged. We need the Barnabases and the Boanerges. And there are warnings all around us if you stop to think about them for a moment. We see flashing lights in ambulances and we have weather alerts on our television screens. There are signs on the roads and if you're a climber at the base of the mountains, wherever we go, we are surrounded by dangers and there are warnings to help us. And we also need to be encouraged. We need this Barnabas factor. He was a great encourager, son of consolation. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ does warn us we are to flee from the wrath to come, and it encourages us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God loves us too much not to tell us the truth, whether that truth is unpalatable or whether it's healthy and wholesome to our spiritual needs. Well, in the end, everything is healthy and wholesome to our spiritual needs if it comes from the mouth of the Lord. And we see that perfectly in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and in his ministry. There is this wonderful balance of virtues in him. We are not as balanced as we should be. We sometimes swing from one extreme to the other. We can be very concerned about justice to the point of severity. Or we can want to be kind and good and it leads us to be soft. But there are no extremes like that in Jesus Christ. Apparently opposite virtues blend and mesh in him. He is the lion, but he is the lamb. He is the judge of the wicked, but he is the father of mercies. He warns and he persuades. Complacent sinners need to be awakened, but convicted contrite sinners need to be persuaded and drawn into God's kingdom. Well, here is one of the great encouragements of the Bible and of the life and ministry of our Lord. It occurred at a particular time in his ministry when he was being harassed and criticized by the Pharisees for doing things that they felt to be wrong on the Sabbath day. They were annoyed that his servants, his disciples, and he as well had eaten had taken the ears of corn on the Sabbath day, which they believed it was not permitted for them to do. 
And then our Lord performed an astonishing miracle on the Sabbath day when he ordered a man who had a withered hand to stretch it out. If you think about that, that was an extraordinary miracle. When I was a lad in our home church in Neath, we had a man who used to turn up every watch night service at the end of each year, usually worse the weather for drink, and he had a withered hand. His name was Harry Press. Imagine that man's hand being healed, the whole arm stretching out. It was an astonishing miracle. Instead of being amazed by it and wondering at it and glorifying God for it, the Pharisees decided that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. But our Lord withdrew from them, and many gathered around him. He healed them all, we are told. He had such sympathy, such compassion, such a heart for people. And he warned them that they were not to tell anybody about what had happened, about the fact that he had healed them. And as Matthew reflected on that, the words of Isaiah came into his mind and heart, and he records them here. Isaiah chapter 42 in the opening four verses. And he picks out in particular that lovely verse, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Jesus is so full of power and tenderness and concern and compassion that he treats people like that. People who are like bruised reeds, people who are like dimly burning wicks. And the quotation goes on, he will lead justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will trust. And that includes us living here in the 21st century in the farthest and almost place in Europe, what we call the United Kingdom. Now, you may feel, and sometimes, if we are honest with ourselves, we do sometimes feel like bruised reeds and like smoldering wicks. Unworthy, maybe even unwanted, insignificant. I feel a failure, we say. I feel so useless. My faith seems to be so weak. My strength is so small. My love is so cold. A bruised reed is insignificant. You'd hardly notice it. And if it's frail and bruised, then it appears to be of no use whatsoever. We may feel like that. And a dimly burning wick, a smoldering wick, there it is. There's just a little light, a little spark left in that candle, but it's almost out. There's hardly anything left. So what use is a bruised reed? What use is a dimly burning wick? Many people don't feel like that. They don't seem to realize their need of God, their need of Christ, their need of help. They're self-sufficient. I did it my way. They're proud of themselves, proud of their pedigree, proud of their achievements. 
proud of their abilities, confident, sure of themselves. They seem to be very certain and very successful. But other people feel their need. And I trust that we are like that this evening, that we feel our weakness. A man like the Apostle Paul, great preacher, great missionary though he was, felt his weakness. Weakness is the way, writes Dr. Jim Packer in a recent book. Weakness is the way. We may feel bruised by sin, by failure, by trouble, by calamity, by family breakup, by disease, illness, bereavement. We feel unable to cope. We may be troubled by doubt and fear. It may be that we identify with William Williams in that hymn. We feel our weakness. Do I really believe, we ask? Am I really forgiven? Is there really a place known as heaven? Does God really love me? Especially when I've done things that are unmentionable? And I've been so self-centered and self-righteous. Does God really love me? Our knowledge is so poor, love so faint, our prayers seem so feeble. We wonder really whether we are Christians at all. We greet each other week by week, and we ask each other, how are you? And we reply, I'm fine, but we may well be anything but fine. We may be inwardly in turmoil and in anguish, and we don't know what to do and where to go and to whom to turn. So what an encouragement this is. We sang about the tenderness, the love of Jesus for poor, ordinary sinners. And we are told here that he will not break the bruised reed. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he's full of compassion toward you. He came for people like that. He didn't come for the healthy or the righteous or the rich. The very first of his Beatitudes reminds us of that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I came for people like that. I came for people who are mourning and grieving because of their unworthiness and sin, who have nothing. They're poor in spirit. He came for you and me when we realize that that is exactly how we are. And he gently lifts up the fallen. He enables us to stand our ground again. And he not only does that, but you think of a bruised reed. And you think of a shepherd out on the Palestinian hills taking a reed and making out of it a musical instrument, what we call a reed pipe, and beginning to play music on it. Jesus can not only strengthen the bruised reed, but he can begin to make music out of us and through us wonderfully.
He will not snuff out the dimly burning wick. There's a spark of life left. There's some faith, some love, some hope, some sorrow for sin. He can fan that into a flame. He can cup his hands, as it were, and gently blow so that the spark begins to glow and the glow begins to burn. Fear turns to faith. Sadness turns to joy. Despair turns to hope. Coldness to warmth. Smoke to fire. Oh, thou wrote Charles Wesley in arguably one of his greatest hymns. Oh, thou who camest from above the pure celestial fire to impart. Kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for your glory burn with inextinguishable blaze and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus can cause the dimly burning wick to, to glow and to become a flame. And not only that, but the flame begins to give light to others. We become useful after all. Now, these are wonderful truths concerning the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, that great, that great high priest who feels for us. The letter to the Hebrews, as I think most of us will know, was written to encourage people who are struggling, who feel like bruised reeds and dimly burning wick. And at the end of chapter 2, we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, had to become a human person. In all things, he had to be made like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the great thing he did. He's made propitiation for our sins. It isn't that he offered to God a sacrifice to appease the wrath of a God whose anger he deplored. Not at all. He, the Son, and the Father together knew that this was the way in which you and I are to be redeemed, that the anger of God against sin should be carried and borne by the Son of God. That's why he came, the great reason, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And then he adds, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. That's you and me. He is able to help us when we are tempted. Now that's the great truth that uh, Matthew here picks up and quotes concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as he views his ministry here among human beings. And of course we are to respond to that. We are to we are to echo, as it were, his words back to our Lord Jesus Christ in response. And let me just simply say four things about our response, how we respond and react to truths like this. The first is that we are to listen, to listen, to listen to him, to listen to his word. We have the Bible, the word of God, the living, active word of God. We have the promises of God. 
running right through the scriptures. Some of you may be old enough to have had promise boxes. You know a promise box was a, a box with all different scriptural texts in the box, different promises, and uh, you would pick one out each day as a promise for that particular day. And there was, of course, uh, if, you were, if you were aware of that promise box and you used it many times, you knew exactly where to go to pick out the promise that you wanted. It, 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 nevertheless, the promises are there, and they're there for our comfort and our help. Just think of some of them for the moment. Think of those glorious promises in the book of Isaiah about the Lord and his concern and love for his people. Think of these words, for example, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. Indeed, those wonderful closing chapters of Isaiah are full of these gracious promises. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord, but... On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at, his, at my word. Think of those lovely promises in the Gospels. Think of John chapter 21 and the way in which our Lord helped Thomas and the disciples. Think of that Glorious invitation in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think of the argument of Romans chapter 5, being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Literally, let us grasp the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then all that follows in terms of that glorious gospel argument. Think of all the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. There's no voice to compare with the voice of Jesus. Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus. We are to listen. That means sometimes we have to be quiet. We have to open our Bibles in our own homes without the distracting voices that William speaks about. Switch the television off. Put the iPad away. Switch the iPhone off. Read God's holy word and spend time in his presence, being encouraged and strengthened, rebuked and helped by the word of Christ. So he encourages us in that way. He strengthens the bruised reed and he fans the flame into a new roaring fire with his word. We are to listen. And then we are to, in the second place, we are to learn. Learn, that is, from the experience of other people in the Bible and subsequently. David is a great example to us, isn't he? He was an astonishing man with amazing gifts, but he sinned grievously. 
Nevertheless, he was able to come to the Lord and say to him, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And in the great penitential psalms, particularly Psalm 51, he's pleading God's mercies, reminding God of his goodness and grace and his own utter unworthiness and sin. Think of a man like Manasseh, one of the most wicked of all the, sin, the, the kings of, uh, of Israel. And yet in the, in the book of Chronicles we are told that, that Manasseh repented of his sin, came back to God, pleaded for mercy and received mercy. Think of Peter denying the Lord three times, being restored wonderfully. Think of Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. They were all the same. Think of the father of the epileptic boy at the foot of the mountain. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's so much we can learn from the experience of the saints. If you're struggling in family life, for example, if you find that your family is a little bit dysfunctional, then go to the Old Testament. Nearly every family in the Old Testament was dysfunctional. There's nothing new about a dysfunctional family. But the Lord is able to help us in family life. And how many times since have we learned from the experience of other people? One of the great privileges of being a Christian pastor is to visit people who are in extremity, who have been suddenly and tragically bereaved of loved ones. What do you do? Well, you go in order to be of some help and comfort, but you come away having been helped and comforted. I think of a lady in Bridgend who was given a diagnosis of terminal cancer with three months to live, and I went into her room and she said, Pastor, when I die at my funeral, tell them about my Savior. Tell them about him. You visit a man who you've never seen before in your life, but you're asked to go and visit him. He's got a half an hour to live. And you enter into his bedroom. What do you say to him? He's not a Christian, but he's asked for help. And you talk to him about the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. The great shepherd who loves his sheep. And the tears begin to flow. And he holds your hand and, and says, that's, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. That's what I've been wanting to hear. And you come away feeling that you've received from God through the trials and hardships of his people. I think of a lady called Kathy Crowhurst whom he used to visit in West End, Hendon Hospital in London, who had spent 30 years of her life in an iron lung. She couldn't move a muscle apart from her lips. The lung did the breathing for her. And with her lips, she was able to manipulate various devices so that she could speak to people on the telephone, turn on the radio. There she was, motionless, for 30 years in an iron lung. She was the sweetest Christian I have ever met. You're privileged to see God's grace in the lives of people like that. Not only people in the Bible, but we can learn so much from the experience of others. 
That's one of the great lessons, isn't it, of the story of Joseph, the way in which his life impacted on others and how other people were blessed through the trials and hardships that came his way. So we are to learn. And then the third thing we are to do is to look, to look at the life of our Lord, to spend time with him in these little biographies that we have in the Gospels. How did our Lord come into the world? Well, he came in the most inconspicuous of ways. Not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, not in Athens, in a tucked away little village called Bethlehem. How did he begin his ministry? Well, he wasn't 30 until it, he wasn't, it wasn't until he was 30 years of age. And how did his ministry begin? Well, it began in the waters of the River Jordan when he was baptized by, the river, by John the Baptist in the river in order to identify himself there and then as the sinless sin-bearer who would fulfill all righteousness. And then he was sent into the desert to be tempted by the devil. What happened in his ministry? Well, he quietly called the Twelve. He gently dealt with a demoniac and with a blind man and with Zacchaeus and with Nicodemus and with the woman of Samaria. When he was opposed, he withdrew. His ministry began in a very humble way up there in, in the Northern Territory by the sea. And he was not seeking publicity and popularity. He didn't want to be noticed. He hadn't come to build up an earthly kingdom. My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. Otherwise, if it were, my servants would fight. He allowed himself to be mistreated, to be falsely accused at his trial, so-called, trumped up as it was, and then to be taken with wicked hands and to be nailed to a cross. He allowed it all to happen. He did not revile. When reviled, he made no appeal to Rome, no calling on the angels, no threatening. He simply entrusted himself to his heavenly father. And he died a lonely, agonizing death for sinners on a Roman gibbet. He bore the sins of his people. In his body on that tree, he was crucified in utter weakness. And then he was raised in power. But he didn't publicize his resurrection. He didn't go around the whole of Israel telling people that he was alive. He just witnessed, he just revealed himself to a few witnesses who became eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And now he's in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, sympathizing, strengthening, and helping his often beleaguered people here on earth. Keep your eye on Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's the way to live the Christian life. Not in the mirror all the time, looking at yourself. There's no more recipe for despair than that. Keep your eye on Jesus, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. 
And then the last thing we are to do is to live, to live in the power of the resurrection, the power of the risen Lord, to live in the gift and power of the Holy Spirit. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Yes, there is a Holy Spirit who has been given to us, and we are to live in the victory of the cross and the resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's great comforter, God's counselor, the witness, the one who stands with us, who dwells within us. God establishes his own kingdom through his spirit, and the sword is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. So he doesn't use the secular arm. He doesn't imprison atheists and cynics. He doesn't hound them. He doesn't go around their houses to see if they're meeting in order that he might imprison them. He doesn't strip unbelievers of their citizenship. He uses the power of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, full of compassion, full of redeeming grace, so unlike so many others in this world. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. That's the Christian message. That's the Christian confidence. The power of the risen Lord. We have received his eternal spirit. And we to live in the spirit. To keep in step with the spirit. To live in a relationship with God daily. Seeking more and more of his spirit. To enable us comfort, strengthen and cause us to serve him. So the gospel will triumph. Justice will lead to victory. This is a tremendously encouraging and optimistic note. The nations will put their trust in him. Well, have we done that? Have you done that? Have you put your trust in him? Whatever your circumstances, can you say, I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, trusting only thee, Trusting thee for full salvation, rich and free. Trusting the Lord Jesus Christ through thick and thin. Through bane and blessing. Through privations and through plenty. Trusting thee, Lord Jesus. Trusting only thee. I'm leaning on you, Lord. Now like a weary traveler, says the hymn writer, that leaneth on his guide. That's what we do in this life. We are like weary travelers, sojourners, pilgrims. We are marching or wrestling or sometimes staggering to heaven. But we have a guide at our right hand and we can lean on him. Now like a weary traveler that leaneth on his guide. Well, may the Lord enable us to live in the power of his gracious Holy Spirit. So there is a response from our hearts. We are to listen and learn and look, and live. Why should we languish? Why walk to heaven as if you're going to the gallows? Our Lord can make the bruised reed stand, and he can make music with you. He can cause the smoldering wick to blaze, and burn and give out light to others. What a gracious, tender, compassionate, Almighty Saviour we have, lean on him.
who has promised to bring you right through whatever it is to the glory to come. And we will then be able to give him all the praise and the honor that he so richly deserves.